Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Indigenous Identity. Vancouver Island University accepts the return of an honorary degree from Mary Ellen Terpel LaFond. Will other educational institutions demand the same? Plus, should Vancouver Park Board focus on generating new revenue? Is it time to bring back the Ferris wheel and zipline attractions? And tech meltdown from Microsoft to Amazon to Salesforce. We look at the steep job cuts hitting the technology industry. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. University of British Columbia says it deeply regrets uh, its handling of the case of retired judge and former law professor Mary Ellen Turpel LaFond, who was the subject of a CBC investigation about her claims of Indigenous heritage. Now, a statement signed by interim UBC President Deborah Buzzard says that the university is reviewing its processes regarding uh, the Indigenous status and truthfulness in hiring. Now, the statement from UBC comes on the same day that the Vancouver Island University in Nanaimo says it has accepted the return of an honorary doctorate from Terpel LaFond after it told her it was reviewing her eligibility for the honour. Now, the university had initiated a process in response to requests from the university community and her group called the Indigenous Women's Collective. Now, Mr. Tur- Ms. Terpel LaFond uh, was presented with an honorary law degree by the school in 2013. The investigation began after uh, there were concerns raised over Ms. Terpel Lafon's claims to be claims to Indigenous ancestry. Now, for decades, she had said that she was a Treaty Indian of Crean ancestry, but documents uncovered indicate that she is of entirely European descent. Terpel Lafon has received more than 10 honorary degrees from Canadian uni- uh, Canadian institutions. Uh, Royal Roads University on Vancouver Island as well presented Terpel Lafon with an honorary degree in 2016. Uh, Ms. Terpel LaFond was a tenured law professor and served as a director of the Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Centre announced this month. Uh, She was no longer with the university as well. Joining me to discuss the return of the honorary degree is Dr. Deborah Saucier, President and Vice Chancellor of Vancouver Island University. Dr. Saucier, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's good to be here, Jazz, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, a very difficult uh, topic and conversation, but an important one to have, certainly in regards to uh, Miss Mary Ellen Turpel Lafon. When did the process begin uh, at VIU in regards to uh, looking at the honorary degree that was given to Miss uh, Turpel Lafon? Um, We began the process uh, before Christmas, and we invited her to respond as part of uh, the process. Uh, And uh, we were going to be proceeding throughout the next little while to take it through our governance structures to um, understand the eligibility for this award and honour. And so she voluntarily, without you sending in an official request to... Uh, to return it, she 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 voluntarily returned it based on the conversation. Um, we uh, invited her to uh, provide uh, materials 
to uh, uh, for the uh, various governance bodies to evaluate. And uh, rather uh, than that, she provided a letter voluntarily surrendering her her honorary doctorate, mm-hmm. uh, and that was late Monday afternoon. I see. Uh- was it a difficult decision for you and and your executive team in the Senate uh, to go through this process to 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 ask for uh, the return of the honorary degree? Um, we did not get to that point. Um, we were at the point of collecting information to put a package together to take through our governance bodies, uh, and so we actually had only. Uh, started the information gathering process when we invited her to participate and provide materials. Uh, and, and that was uh, what the result was on Monday. Uh, I have not um, actually had the conversation with Senate yet about uh, whether or not uh, Dr. Trapelafond remained eligible to have our highest award or honor, um, but rather um, um, she voluntarily relinquished it mm-hmm. before we could start that. Um, it- in regards to starting this process, was it uh, the broader conversation that was already out there in the public domain, or was it something local uh, that convinced the school that they need to begin and begin the process? Um, we received a number of requests from our community members uh, to examine her continued eligibility for this award. Uh, and we take uh, community participation very seriously here at VIU, and we felt that we had to start the process to evaluate the continued eligibility for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, will the school, and like all universities and colleges do, uh, bestow honorary degrees on distinguished um, uh, citizens? Um, do you think other universities uh, should also be going through the similar process that VIU had just started? Um, I actually don't know where other universities are with respect to their processes or what their processes are. Uh, Universities are very idiosyncratic places and often have different governance structures, uh, different committee levels and decision-making processes. Um, However, I understand that um, many universities are probably going through the same kind of thing that we are right now. Um, uh, and undoubtedly in response to their communities and their communities' requests to examine this issue. So in regards to the honorary degrees, the school will be reviewing its policies in regards to, you know, nominations or awarding an honor, so, or, or awarding somebody an honorary degree moving forward? Is, is there a, a sort of a process to look at, at at how you go about doing that at your school? You bet. We have committed to actually uh, evaluating our policy and processes around the uh, awarding of honorary doctorates um, and also including uh, evaluation of of everything uh, in that process to ensure that we're aligned with our legislation, but also to ensure that um, we can uh, continue to have confidence in the ability to actually honor people uh, who uh, make significant contributions to the community. Mm-hmm. And this is not, you're not the only school that may be looking at this, but in regards to uh, somebody stating that they're a particular, uh, of a particular ancestry, uh, is there much you think a school can do uh, in regards to verifying some of those claims that individuals, and I'm talking broadly here, that in the rare mm-hmm. case do make and they may not be of a certain heritage? 
Uh, again, you know, this is a significant issue for us at VIU, and we will be developing an Indigenous identity policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people uh, assume Indigenous identity, um, it harms all Indigenous peoples because it takes their voice away, it takes their seat at the table away, and it, and it uh, you know, doesn't do the kinds of things that as a values-based institution we stand for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, are you of uh, Indigenous heritage? I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, mm-hmm. so I'm um, not from here. Uh, I was born in Saskatoon, and my family uh, comes from on my, my, my dad's side, first from the Red River Valley and mm-hmm. then from a small town outside of Batoche. Uh, what more needs to be done broadly, and, I, and this is the stepping away from this specific conversation, in regards to, um, in regards to educational institutions being more welcoming and more um, attuned to Indigenous, uh, first of all, attracting students, but also just the culture itself and and, and sort of infusing more of it in our studies and in our broader conversation, do you think? Is there more for universities and colleges to do in regards to the the educational side? Uh, Absolutely, you bet. Um, You know, one of the things that we know um, happen uh, at universities is that it's a really important exploratory phase in your life Mm -hmm. for many young people. Um, And if they can see folks that look like them, whether they're Indigenous or Black, Southeast Asian or the like, and that's in every aspect of the university, not just uh, faculty, but, you know, folks who work in the library, folks who, who are working in the registrar's office, et cetera, et cetera. They feel more comfortable and confident. Um, and other, you know, other aspects of, of ensuring a welcoming place include having culturally sensitive supports for folks, not having to explain why you might want to take time off to celebrate Diwali or Ramadan or solstice, right? And, and having those supports available will actually make universities more inclusive and just. Uh, Dr. Sosi, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate you uh, speaking openly about uh, this particular topic as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're joining us now to talk about uh, Indigenous identity uh, and the specific issue of Mr. Pell Lafond, who said that she was a Treaty Indian of Cree ancestry, but documents uncovered by an investigation by the CBC indicate she is of entirely European descent. Joining me now is Breen Ouellette. He's a Vancouver-based lawyer of Métis descent. Breen, thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on. Your thoughts on this, uh, uh, you know, I'm still trying to process all of it. Uh, your thoughts on what has transpired over the last few months in regards to Mr. Pellafon and how some of these institutions have handled uh, the issue of identity and, and um, in this case, bestowing honorary doctorates. Your thoughts? Well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a complicated issue that's more complicated by the law, uh, I, I think. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, universities are looking at these as, as isolated incidents, and uh, I think that's wrong. I think that uh, Trapel Lafond is not the first. You know, there was Carrie Barassa. Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure there will be more in the future who will be exposed because um, institutions have not been doing a good job of validating uh, identity. And in the case of Trapel Lafond, 
apparently they haven't been doing a good uh, job of, identif- uh, of, of validating uh, academic credentials either. So that's, that's another big issue that they need to address. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the Indigenous Women's Collective is calling on all the universities that have issued uh, her honorary degrees to stand tall and follow through on the investigative process to defend academic honesty and honourable conduct. That speaks to my own Indigenous values of accountability, because we're not just talking about Terpel Lafon's accountability. We're also talking about the institution's accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they're going to be looking at it probably from colonial values and legal principles, and they're going to be tempted to drop investigations uh, when Terpel Lafon gives up, as UBC did when she resigned, because they're going to be looking at things like the common law principle of mootness, which is the idea that you know, legal proceedings should end if they can't result in a practical outcome, outcome between the parties. If she returns her honours, then the institutions will just say, well, it's done. There's no need to keep investigating. And that, to my Indigenous values, and I believe to many other Indigenous people's values, that's a mistake because uh, if, while it's true that the universities can't make a determination anymore about their relationship with her if she ends the relationship preemptively, by reviewing the actual specific cases of Barassa, of Terpelafond, and others, they can take that opportunity to be open and honest about how they failed as institutions, how they contributed to the Indigenous identity fraud by taking a person that they should have looked into, they didn't look into, and holding that person up as an example. Um, And if they don't do that, if they try to fall into an academic echo chamber where they're not looking at actual cases that have occurred, they have that opportunity, mm-hmm. um, they're failing. They're well, failing on their own accountability. Why do you think people do this? I'm just trying to understand. Ms. Terpelafond has, uh, you know, uh, she's made a contribution when it comes to government and some of the policies she's been driving and she's been vocal on, on many issues as well. Why do you think these individuals, I know it's a tough question to answer, why do they do this? Well, I mean, if, you know, if they won't tell us, all we could do is speculate. Yeah. And it could be an issue of initial mistaken identity. And then as time goes on and they get deeper and deeper uh, caught in the quagmire of the mistake, they start to turn it into something more than a mistake. They allow it to, 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 to become something that they've adopted and they know is wrong or that they try to, you know, make up excuses for or change the story. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's the issue. If somebody comes to the realization that they've been mistakenly told by their parents or they've mistakenly identified that they're Indigenous, um, they should come clean. They should admit it. Yeah. They should, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with admitting you've made a mistake, especially early on when you discover it. That's a whole other thing to live with it for decades and try to, you know, keep building a career on it. Yeah. Uh, Breen, we've run out of time. Love to have you on again very soon on this issue. Thank you so much uh, for making time for us today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yesterday, the Vancouver Folk uh, Music Festival announced that it wouldn't be taking place in 2023 and might never return due to unsustainable production costs. Uh, this morning, Mark Zuber-Bueller, president of the Vancouver Folk Festival, spoke to Simi Serra uh, about the financial challenges. Take a listen. It's become uh, prohibitively expensive to put on these types of events in a post-COVID environment. And last year, our 
even though we had a very successful uh, festival in terms of attendance, uh, we raised our ticket prices. We cut uh, a number of events to keep our costs down somewhat. Even though we took those steps, uh, our costs still went up quite dramatically. So there's become a real gap between um, the term of the expenses of an event of this nature plus the anticipated funds that we feel that we could raise in order to support it. We just don't really have the funds now to put a festival on for this upcoming year. And also, we don't see a way forward in terms of a sustainable uh, fashion uh, to keep the festival going. Uh, that is Mark Zuberbuehler, who's uh, president of the Vancouver Folk Festival uh, Board. Uh, he spoke to our semester earlier today. Well, today the Squamish Constellation Festival also shared uh, similar information, saying that due to decreased attendance, escalating operational costs, and upfront payments and deposits, they're also not sure they can move forward. Joining me now to talk about music festivals and the challenges they face is Eric Alper. He's a music industry expert and publicist. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I just wish it was under uh, better circumstances. Y- yeah. Folk music festival is certainly one of my favorite festivals, but certainly the, a great festival for the for the province of BC and, and Canada. Yeah, I mean, it's iconic. It's part of our you know yearly cultural uh, part of the cultural calendar. What is, in regards to what's happening in Vancouver, are music festivals across this country and North America facing similar issues? Yeah, mostly they're all facing the exact same issue. Um, A lot of oversaturation has created problems in California and Las Vegas, where there is a number of new music festivals, and they're kind of going after the same audience. They're diluting the audience for for some organizers. They're all competing with the same crowd. Um, Then when you factor in the effect of inflation on the price of gasoline and goods, um, there's an equipment shortage when it comes to everything from speakers to stage material to building material, in some cases, um, you know, things like wood and steel. The same problems is sometimes the reason why it takes you seven months to get a dishwasher is the exact same reason why they can't get, um, you know, proper material to build things on festival sites Um, and hiring difficulties. There's just simply sometimes not enough people to put one of these festivals on. Um, uh, All those reasons are affecting why so many music festivals are going to be having a lot of problems in 2020 and onwards. Uh, a lot of it, I guess, also um, is just the upfront cost, right? Like you sell your tickets, uh, you have your expenses, and once the, 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 the festival is over, you know the dollars that you've made, and then you can start paying your suppliers and everybody else. But the upfront costs uh, for most of these festivals, like Vancouver, like the Folk Festival or, or the Constellation Festival, the dollars come after them, even though they need them upfront. Yeah, you know, some of these festivals, and and I'm not privy exactly to the Vancouver one, um, but some festivals that I have worked at, um, pre-COVID, they were spending um, millions of dollars to book acts about a year, sometimes two in advance in order to book them. If you're a high-level artist, if you're a very popular artist, right now today, you probably know if you might be playing a music festival come 2024 in the summertime because mm-hmm. there's only so many days where you can travel and in the summertime, um, and you those festivals need to put out that money now in order to reserve me, me you know, Mr. Big Shot, you know, artist, um, and, you know, it, it, 
add COVID to that, a lot of these artists were pre-booked two, three years in advance, waiting for the show to actually happen. There's no money coming in, but meanwhile, the festival doesn't have access to that money. So now that you've got higher costs, everything is that much more expensive. You're only playing with almost 2019 money. Um, But you're right, for music festivals anywhere, they need to start putting out this money and reserving not only the artists, but the staff and the time and the wherewithal and all of the equipment um, almost the day after their next their their last festival with no money returning maybe until another five or six months that's a big choice for somebody to take a risk on uh, the big festivals the Coachellas the Lollapaloozas the Glastonbury Festival South by Southwest uh, I'm going to assume they have um, obviously bigger budgets and uh, are probably have, are much more stable financial footing um, are festivals is particularly in a place like Vancouver um, are they of the past, or do you think that we will eventually come back to a, a Vancouver Folk Festival or a Constellation Festival? Just because of a sometimes just getting that land, the costs themselves. Some have said, "Look, they're not good for climate change in regards to the the energy that's used, the garbage that's there, all those types of things." And it's always difficult to get permits here. Uh, you've yeah. got a large um, a NIMBY uh, crowd as well in this city. Yeah. It's difficult to get anything going. That's fun sometimes. I mean, are we going to see a, a, a festivals like that, a music festivals in Vancouver? Or are they going to be of the past soon? You know what's interesting is, is um, you know, when you're talking about the big festivals now, it's so easy, and, and, and you're not, you know, no slight against anybody who thinks that. Um, it, it's so easy to take a look at Coachella or South by Southwest and say, wow, like they're doing so well. Make no mistake, for the first 10 years, they were probably one bad weather day away from mm-hmm. going bankrupt to they might have just hit it well. In fact, with Coachella, the reason why it tipped over was ironically having artists like Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones and a lot of the and Pink Floyd, or at least with Roger Waters and Pink Floyd's uh, music, um, tipped it over. Um, went skyrocket in terms of availability of artists and tickets. Those were the times when you can charge three, four times as much as opposed to charging um, a little bit because you're targeting a younger demographic. Those older demographics, they have the money to spend for the VIP ticket. That's $3,000 each. What's, what's a little bit um, cautious mm-hmm. about the Vancouver Folk Festival to the rest of the country is it, it doesn't matter if you start booking younger artists on the bill, if you have this vibe that is only for older people, nobody's getting any younger, and thanks to COVID, they may not be going out as much. Mm-hmm. They're certainly holding on to their money longer. Um, they're worried about their future. They may not want to spend two, three, four, five hundred dollars on a music festival. The choices for luxury items is always in competition with one another. And when you're a music festival, your competition is Netflix, and your competition sometimes is sleep. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I think the music festivals have to not only do two amazing things at once, they have to target the right kind of bands, mm-hmm. and they have to hope that the audience is young enough to keep turning over rather than relying on the older demographic all the time. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's, it's Demographics are a tough one to balance, especially when, yeah, it comes, for sure. when it comes to music. Eric, thank you so much for your time, my friend. No problem. Crossing fingers, I hope that they can figure something out because it's, it's a lot more expensive to start something from the ground up. 
Well, on Monday night, Vancouver Park Board Commissioners unanimously approved ABC Commissioner Marie-Claire Howard's motion of directing Park Board staff to think big and outside the box in generating new commercial revenue to help support the growing cost of operating parks and recreation programs and replacing and expanding existing facilities that are aging and no longer meet the demand. Now, the discussion about generating revenue has some suggesting new restaurants on Park Board property, potentially, or perhaps even during bringing back the uh, Ferris Wheel and Zipline attractions at Queen Elizabeth Park. Joining me to talk about the potential new venues and the desire to generate new revenue is Marie-Claire Howard. She is an ABC Park Board Commissioner. Marie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, uh, what uh, pushed you to introduce this particular motion? Well, uh, as we were uh, looking at the budget for 2023, uh, it was it was fairly easy to realize that uh, we had expenses that uh, uh, ex- looming expenses that are well above uh, our capacity to revenue to generate revenues right now, mm-hmm. and uh, so we and we also thought that uh, Park Board was leaving money on the table, if you, if you want, uh, by not um, exploring um, more commercial partnerships uh, on its, on its uh, parks and in, on the beaches. Mm-hmm. What were those, I'm just curious, those, those big uh, uh, costs that you see coming down that, that you're concerned about? Well, the biggest one is climate change. Uh, we, we can't wait. Uh, we need to act, and that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, money that we need to find. In the FinBig motion, we, we're looking not just at commercial partnership, but co- partnership with other levels of government. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking particularly about the federal government in terms of helping out with uh, our need to adapt our parks and our beach, uh, our seawalls, basically, to to the uh, to the the new weather that we, we are getting. What's the cost? Just to, I want, I mean, I've heard a few numbers to run. Right now, what's a rough estimate to, to, to well, fix they, the seawall, to make it at least more resilient when it comes to, to, to climate change? Well, there's no number yet, and that's why you're hearing lots of numbers, because there's no numbers. Okay. Uh, there's some preliminary numbers being thrown around that replacing the seawall as it would cost upwards of, of $250,000, and that's just the seawall around Stanley Park. Uh, we we have not taken into account the fact that we need to fix the seawall on the west side of Vancouver as well, which is mm-hmm. it's disappearing. The beach are disappearing. The stairwells, uh, staircase are disappearing. Kitsilano Beach is at, is at risk. So, uh, so there is no number. We just know it's going to be a very high number. <laughs> uh, we're still like the preliminary stage of assessing what needs to be done, uh, and in what order. So in regards to generating that revenue and you have expenses and uh, as you were saying, uh, so, you know, restaurants, uh, I think of the restaurants at Prospect Point, think of other uh, park board property or taxpayer property, however you wish to refer to it. Uh, Are you open to perhaps allowing restaurants to open uh, pop-up restaurants or perhaps actual physical structures that may need to be built uh, and where you would perhaps collect lease space or rent uh, from those facilities, is that something that you would be open to? That, that's what we have asked to staff to look into. Uh, looking at restaurants, uh, I'm thinking pop-up 
uh, beach cafes that would open, that would not be permanent structure, that would open from May to, to September that when the weather is nice. Uh, it's just at the idea stage. We ask staff to look into what was feasible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I, I just want to stress, we're not, ex- we're not expecting to build enough cafes and restaurants to generate enough revenue to fix the to fix the, the seawalls yeah. around Vancouver. <laughs> well, it, when it's a quarter of a billion dollars, and like I said, those are not your numbers, other people's numbers. There's only really two levels of government. That's yeah. provincial or federal government. And to be honest, with that kind of number, you got to have a significant amount of uh, buy-in from the federal government. So that's exactly. I, I don't expect the park board or the city hall <laughs> to be handling yeah. that to a quarter of a billion dollar expense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, one of the other things that has uh, proven popular in the past, uh, Ferris wheel uh, mm-hmm. and zip line attractions yeah. at Queen Elizabeth Park. Yeah. Could you see that yeah. becoming more permanent during the spring and summer months? Because it seemed to attract the uh, exactly. uh, people and, exactly. and it did raise some decent amount of money for the city, for the park board, sorry. So, so yeah, no, that's that's exactly what we're looking at, is looking at what has been popular in the past and ask staff to look at it and see how they can either bring it back or bring back something similar or different or new or just think outside the box. We, we had previous a previous government that was uh, determined not to uh, work with uh, the private sector in uh, in making our parks lively. We want to change that pers- that that perspective. You- uh, so this is what we did. We asked the, par- the staff at Park Board to identify what are the opportunities that would make the city more fun for everyone, be accessible to everybody, and uh, and generate revenue. I'm just looking at the the numbers here for the um, I believe it was a zip line. In regards to the in the summer of 2015, the temporary zipline attraction at the Quarry Garden at Queen Elizabeth Park, over 87 days of actual operation, that's weather permitting, of course, the zipline saw t- over 23,000 riders, where 75% came to Queen Elizabeth Park just for the zipline, and the yeah. private operator generated $335,000 in revenue with $45,000 going to the park board based on a formula, uh, and I think it was uh, 10% for the first seven, uh, uh, the $250,000 in revenue. Anything above that, you get a little bit more, 35 40%, depending on how much revenue is coming in. Do you worry that some critics will accuse you and others who are looking at these options and saying, wait a minute, you're commercializing uh, parks. Parks should be a place for serenity. Parks should be a place... Uh, that shouldn't be turned into, and these are wine words, not anybody else's, Disneyland, uh, that we shouldn't be, these are public grounds, uh, paid for by taxpayers, sustained by taxpayers, that we shouldn't commercialize some of our parks the way some are saying. What would you say to those critics? Well, just because they belong to to taxpayers, as you you point out, does not mean they need to be neglected. And in order to be properly maintained, we need more revenues. So there's a, a, a fine balance that we need to find. Uh, I'm not, we're not pushing the uh, ultra-commercialization of, of the parks. We're looking at finding a balance. Some, a lot of people, and this is what we found when we were uh, meeting voters, you know, door knocking, a lot of people are wondering why we don't have beach cafes in Vancouver. They are all over Europe. They are all over in, in Australia. And why in Vancouver it's not possible to go down in the summertime and sit at a little temporary cafe and have a glass of wine while you're watching the sunset. So we're not talking about ultra-commercialization. We're talking about making additional use of our park for populations that currently can't or 
don't use the box. It, it, uh, it seems like not to take anything away from anyone, mm-hmm. just adding. It seems like there. Part of this is the past administration as well, and I'm 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 pulling this out of the year, but the Stanley Park train is a classic example yeah. of that. Popular with the public. I've certainly, when my uh, son was at a younger age, we came as a family a few times, loved it. He loved it, and you donate money, and of course, it helps the firefighters burn fund. But you know, for for the Stanley Park train to be in disrepair, there almost seems to be an institutional desire to let it fade away, to let it uh, to to not take care of it as as as, as we should have because it's an older an older uh, trains. Uh, but other areas do preserve, protect, and maintain the similar trains of that sort. I'm not saying it's the ABC commissioners. This is something you've inherited. It seems to me there's been a culture in the past of people saying, you know what, we're going to make parks and keep them parks. We're not going to commercialize. Do you think there's a part, partially you're fighting, um, uh, fighting a past perspective and view from a different administration as well that didn't want to see some of that stuff? Well, it's, it's hard to tell. We've only been on the job for two months, so I, I cannot. I cannot pretend to be an expert on what's going on uh, in, uh, you know, within the, uh, the staff uh, at Park Board. Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's, it's. I think COVID was very hard on on uh, on uh, the maintenance of many things. Mm-hmm. And I like to, to to think that there is an energy in the Park Board to get things back on track. Uh, we have been talking to the staff about this train, and uh, we are hope, hoping that it will be working soon. Uh, just the same as we're hoping that maintenance of our fields, sports fields, will get back on track, and we will start having a schedule that's respected in terms of creating new, new parks. We've, we've fallen behind other cities in the lower mainland, and that's not acceptable. Uh, why that happened, how it happened, I can't, I can't tell you. Uh, maybe in four years I'll be able to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I, I, w- I really want to think that um, there is a desire to make thing- things work. Well, we will be looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Good to have you on the show. Look forward You're to having welcome. you on again. Well, as food prices in Canada continue to soar, putting pressure on families as they buy groceries, pay their rent and try to make ends meet, school nutrition programs across the country say they're struggling to provide meals to a growing number of students in need. Uh, The Breakfast Club of Canada, which is one national program that reaches more than 580,000 children, says in the meal programs it's it supports in more than 3,500 schools, an average of 30 to 40% of students typically participated prior to the pandemic. With food prices remaining high now, some averages are closer to 60 and 75% of the whole school population. Joining me now is Brent Mansfield. He's a teacher at Lord Roberts Elementary School, where he runs the Lunch Lab School uh, Food Program and Steering Committee member, of course, of the BC Chapter of the Coalition for Healthy School food. Brent, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jeff. Uh, Walk me through what you're seeing here in the Vancouver area when it comes to food security, particularly with uh, with what we're seeing in regards to inflation. Yeah, I mean, I think the same thing you're, you, I just heard you say about what we're hearing across Canada is, uh, is not surprisingly happening in Vancouver, where we're seeing more and more students uh, relying on and needing more support at school. And I mean, the, 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 that need was there before the pandemic, but we're only seeing that increase. And obviously the inflation we all know about and seeing food prices affecting families, 
And then it's also affecting programs like mine and others across the country in terms of our ability to offer the quality and diversity of food that we'd like to. Uh, who funds your program? So right now it is, it, it's largely a, a charitable program. So we actually, um, I, Lunch Lab is a partnership with Growing Chefs and Fresh Roots, which are two Vancouver-based charities. And, and we have funding from City of Vancouver and do other fundraising opportunities. We're, we're part of the group that's really excited for the promised um, public investment from both federal and provincial governments that would enable programs like ours and many more to flourish and grow as well. As an educator, what do you see in children that have not eaten or had a good breakfast uh, uh, before school day? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to be surprised when kids aren't well fed, when kids don't have the moment to slow down and nourish themselves, they're not going to be able to focus and learn in nearly the same way that they're able to. And, and what we find is the exact opposite is true, right? We actually, one of the things we pride ourselves is on is actually having our grade six, seven students working with a chef to prepare the food that served other students. So lunch becomes part of learning. It's part of the day anyways. Let's actually make it something where students can learn um, how to prepare food for themselves. They're indirectly doing math. They're learning collaboration. They're getting job skills. And, and in, instead of the opposite, where we're seeing kids distracted, uh, having a hard time focusing, struggling, um, maybe because of the food insecurity issues they're facing at home and the stress that is even going to trickle down to, to students. Uh, prior to COVID, was there still a shortage in regards to uh, school meals? I mean, this, uh, we should, in a perfect world, not have a school food program, but we do. Was, there, uh, was the need pretty stable or was it already inching out prior to COVID? Um, pretty stable in the number of years I was at the school. And Jazz, if I can, I would challenge you. I'd actually think in a perfect world, everyone would eat a delicious meal at school that is part of the school day. And that they would learn from that and their eating habits would change. Their learning and performance at school would change. And, and I think Canada's the only G7 country that doesn't have a school food program. And I think as educators, as a public, we're really failing our children by not doing that. You said the federal government was providing funding. Uh, is this a, a permanent or is this going to be over the next fiscal, just so for the next the, fiscal? The, the federal government is promising funding. There is pledged funding in the budget. It's been in a number of policy documents. We're now waiting for the next budget to be released. I will also say in B.C., the uh, Minister of Education, the Minister of Agriculture have both had the, the development of more school food programs in their mandate letters since this government's been in place with the new premier that now has been stepped up to expedite the development of, mm-hmm. but we're still waiting on that next budget where we're actually seeing dollars. So right now, uh, the program that I, I am part of running sees no provincial or federal dollars. I've got about 30 seconds or less. Uh, inflation, we are told, will come down, may take 18 months, may take two years, may take a year. We don't know. But do you want this this government funding to be permanent then? Or do you think you can rely uh, on just private sector funding, donations from, I, from the public? I think for this to work, it needs to be cost-shared and universal, meaning all levels of government and community partners get involved in this to make it sustainable and make it accessible to all students. So this is not something that's stigmatizing that's just for the few kids who need it. All kids benefit, all kids thrive, all kids' health improves when they're eating healthy, delicious food at school every day. Ten seconds, where can people donate money or where can they learn more about this program? You know what, the first thing I would say, go to the Coalition for Healthy School Food is one, and then if you want to check out the Growing Shafts or Fresh Roots website and, and or Lunch Lab, you're going to see more about that there, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you there. Brent, thank you for your time today, my friend. Okay, thanks so much, Jess. All right, that's Brent. that is Brent Mansfield. He's a teacher at Lord Roberts Elementary School where he runs the Lunch Lab, and of course he's part of the committee and member of the BC chapter of the Coalition for Healthy School Food.
Microsoft has become the latest largest uh, latest large tech company uh, to reverse a pandemic or recruitment spree. In the face of a slowing economy, announced uh, that it's going to shed 10,000 workers by the end of March, or nearly 5% of its staff. Uh, the cuts extend the sharp correction that has swept through the tech sector in recent weeks. Uh, Microsoft, uh, uh, as well, had added 40,000 workers uh, during um, the COVID period, but uh, it has now reversed courts. Uh, of course, uh, earlier this month, um, Amazon announced plans to cut 18,000 jobs while software rival Salesforce, uh, which had almost 80,000 employees at the end of October, said it would shed 10% of its staff as well. Facebook and WhatsApp parent Meta said uh, late last year that they would, it would cut about 13% of their workforce. Today, Calgary-based tech firm Benevity also said that it's laying off 130 seven staff members. Uh, Benevity does have an office here um, in Victoria as well. Joining me to talk about these tech layoffs is Andy Brewer. He's a tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Good afternoon, Andy. Hi, Jazz. So walk me through, why is this happening? Well, basically, during the pandemic, all of these tech companies started going on a hiring, uh, you know, a freeze, or basically they were just hiring people like nonstop because all of us were stuck at home and we started to use all our laptops and computers for entertainment. Now, all of our shopping was done with Amazon, so they hired more. But now people are going back to normal, but we also have a high interest rate and also the fears of a recession. So these companies are looking at it and they got too much headcount. And now, and it's funny because they're all doing it right at the same time, Jazz. If you if you add all of them up, it's about 60,000 in total in the tech industry. So... You know, a lot of people in the tech are are brushing up on their resumes right now. Do you think uh, the industry uh, was just a little too fat in regards to employee count? And what I mean by that is the, the industry itself has seen, in most cases, significant amount of growth. Yes, there's been a tech meltdown in the early aughts, one would argue around 2008, 2009 as well with the financial crisis. But generally speaking, it has been hiring lots of people. There's been tremendous amount of growth. Uh, do you think that the industry, broadly speaking, has matured? And this is part of um, maturing, which is you've got to be much more careful in regards to the headcount that you do have. Absolutely. You know, um, at some point in time, they're going to have to make some money. And people are, are and, and Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, even said, people are are being very conscious of their, of how they're their money these days. Even the Surface Laptop Jazz, which is Microsoft's bread and butter uh, device, the sales of laptops have gone down, but they were it was gone crazy during the pandemic. Everybody was buying laptops. You couldn't even find one because people had to get webcams and laptops to set up a home office. But now they're just not selling. Everybody already has a laptop and they're not upgrading these devices. Even if you look at a smartphone, most people are choosing to keep their phones running past the two-year mark, which is typically when a, someone will upgrade. So with with a lot of people not or worrying about money, they had to make these cuts. And... The thing is, is when we had the pandemic, they thought this was just going to keep going. It was just going to keep rolling mm-hmm. and, and we're just going to buy everything online. But people w- went back to their old ways. Nature was healing and essentially now they have to cut the force. The one company, however, Jazz, that hasn't made any layoffs is Apple. And that's because they didn't go on a hiring free, uh, spree mm-hmm. when the pandemic happened. They Their hiring is remain steady since about 2016. So they're the only one out of all these big tech companies that hasn't had a layoff yet. Do you think this says something about um, 
uh, Elon Musk, and he came in to Twitter, laid off lots of people. Uh, he felt that it was uh, just uh, had, had too many employees. It was too fat. Uh, and he trimmed a lot of folks. And he says, you can run this company with less people. Uh, now, a lot of folks would disagree. Perhaps there's more trolls. There's uh, less security. I don't know. But he's been basically, basically Twitter still works like Twitter always did. You know, some people may disagree. But he's done it with significantly less people. It does speak to uh, probably the tech industry also having to realize they've got to start streamlining and streamlining, and be a bit more focused on headcount because uh, everybody was losing their minds when Elon was laying people off. But right about now, he looks pretty smart. Uh, he does. And I remember when the World Cup came on Jazz, I was like, well, this break Twitter because so many people were going to be on Twitter at that time. And it didn't. So Elon Musk has really shown that, you know, Twitter can still run with a significantly reduced headcount. And he's still got to make money. You remember, like he paid $44 billion. He's got a billion dollars in interest. So he's still trying to turn that around. However, it's private now, Jazz. So we can't see the, the, the stats on how many people are subscribing to that Twitter blue uh, subscription service. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the other companies are looking at something like Twitter and wondering, you know what, maybe, maybe we hired too many people. But Microsoft, they're really going into AI. They've invested so much into um, open AI and chat GPT. And what they're trying to do is they want to make search sexy again. And so they want everyone to be on Bing. And so I think what you're going to see in the next year or two, and something I'll be watching very closely, is how they integrate AI into their search. But if you're Google right now, you're definitely worrying about what Microsoft is doing because they're pretty much all in on AI. Well, you know, speaking of AI, Google's had an AI division for, what, 10, 12, 14 years? What have they ever come up with that that can be marketed? And now with ChatGPT, I think they're struggling uh, and uh, they haven't gotten anything to market that that people are talking about. You and I are talking about ChatGPT, not anything Google's doing. Yeah, they've done search well many, many years ago, but there's not much else. I think that's part of the issue. You've got all these other sort of non-essential uh, programs that you're funding, hiring people. Yet your core business is search and, and digital advertising, and you haven't done anything with with the the artificial intelligence side. And I think so. I think there may be a reckoning there. I'm just looking on my computer right now. So when Elon Musk took over Twitter, 7,500 employees. They're now down to 2,300. And a story today, but moved about six hours ago, said he may may trim a little bit more, and Twitter's headcount could soon be under 2,000 people from 7,500, literally, what, eight months ago, and Twitter's still running. Yeah, and they're, they're mostly just engineers. So he's really taken out the fat of all the marketing and staff and such. You know, it's funny, Jazz, because on my LinkedIn, I have all the people in the tech industry, and it, just so many people are announcing that they've been laid off this year. It's staggering. Um, but, you know, a lot of people from Twitter Canada had lost their jobs, but... Twitter is still operating. And I think a lot of these tech companies are looking at what Elon did and saying, hey, maybe we need to, uh, you know, get rid of our headcount as well and try to save money. But we have to watch what Microsoft is going to do with chat GPT because everybody has been using it. They're going to go all in. They've invested about $10 billion into it right now. And apparently at Google, it's all hands on deck. They are very, very worried about that. So we're going to have to see if people will actually use Bing because Jazz, I don't know anybody that uses Bing as a search <laughs> engine. So they, they even tried to get him into movies. They're like, just Bing it, you know, and they'll pay for movies to say that, but it just sounds kind of weird. We're so just, used to Google. Just Bing it. No, yeah. I'm going to Google it. There you go. Andy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz. 
The union rate uh, has trended downwards uh, in BC for nearly three decades. Depending on the year, unionization rates in BC hovers around 28 to 30 percent. So about a third of British Columbia's workers are, are members of a union. Part of the challenge of organizing, uh, part of that challenge is, is organizing a union drive. UIN is a Vancouver-based startup company which uh, is launching a digital platform tomorrow that allows workers to anonymously invite their co-workers and vote to unionize their workplace. Joining me now is Colton Gabera, uh, co-founder of UIN. Colton, and thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell me, how did you come up with this idea or a desire to uh, at least uh, bring some sort of tech savvy to the age-old um, desire by a lot of folks who want to unionize, which is, uh, which is to, to uh, you know, sign a piece of paper? How did this app or, I guess, online platform come about? So my co-founder and I, Conley, um, we, he kind of brought this idea to me. Uh, we have he has, his family has a long-standing history in unions, and uh, him and I actually started out uh, working together in just a, a laborers' union when we were freshly 19. And uh, you know we were working at a job site at the time, and it was fairly unsafe. We didn't have a porta potty at the time, and we had a union to back us, and we had all of our needs met and solved right away. So that was really exciting to us. And you know as we grew older, Conley has a background in digital marketing. And I have a background in business. And we just kind of came up with this idea because we wanted to make it more accessible for all workers at any workplace to unionize and have that backing if they wanted it. Uh, how would it work? So first of all, UN is for any worker at any workplace who wants access to better pay on average, better benefits, and better treatment at work. So we're the first completely digital, completely anonymous platform where any worker can unionize their workplace. It, before I dive into it, it's important to understand uh, why being part of a union is very important. So, like I mentioned, you get access to higher wages on average. Make sure you're fairly compensated for the work that you're doing. You have access to better benefits, pensions, safer working conditions, job security, and more. And you'll have a wor- uh, an organization of professionals behind you that will fight for your rights at work. Uh, and the main thing to understand is that all workplaces can unionize. It doesn't matter where you work. And UN makes it easy to do so. So, firstly, you would navigate to our website, www.u you-in.ca, and you'd click start a union to create an account. Then you would create a union drive. So this is just a fancy way of saying, saying starting the unionization process. Then you would send anonymous digital invites to all your coworkers. Once those coworkers were in the union drive, a vote would be cast to unionize. Once again, this is all done anonymously through our platform. So if 60% or more vote yes, uh, then the union drive would be successful and you would be sent digital union certification cards to sign. And both UN and the union you choose to work with on our platform would be there to help you through the entire process. And so the person sending the initial invite, they remain anonymous? They do, yes. Uh, because one would argue that it, traditionally when a union drive occurs or somebody's instigating it in a workplace, uh, sometimes those individuals... Uh, can be let go, they can be intimidated. I guess in this case, you think this provides them the, uh, the, the anonymity. That's exactly it. We want to give the power to uh, the worker in the workplace. And so we have this as a tool and a feature of our service that allows people to remain anonymous. Of course, they can kind of navigate the unionization process as they see fit. But like you said, by remaining anonymous, it, it kind of protects them and gives them that peace of mind when they're going through this. When you instigate the joining a union initially, 
you would have to contact a specific union or local you wish to be represented by beforehand? Is that how it would work? So actually on our platform, uh, we've partnered with several unions to start here. So we have uh, IBEW 213 in Coquitlam and IATSE 891 in Burnaby. Um, So this is an electrical union and a film union. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about this is that you don't have to be a construction worker or electrician to unionize with our union partners. Uh, They represent uh, all kinds of workplaces. So, I mean, recently we saw Starbucks was unionized by the steelworkers. Um, So basically from our platform, uh, when the individual goes ahead, creates an account and starts a union drive, they'll get to choose from one of our union partners that we have on our website. And of course, if uh, they're unsure, they can reach out to us and we can uh, we can partner them with one of the unions that we think would be best suited for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, will or will you be working with other unions? I know you said you're going to recommend other unions that could be better suited, but are you working towards getting more uh, directly involved with your, your platform? You said you have two, uh, but there are other bigger umbrella organizations like the BC Federation of Labor and places like that. Are you working to add more to your platform? We are. I mean, right now we're doing our launch. Uh, it's a beta launch, uh, but we still are launching in full. We believe that the two unions that we're partnered with right now are more than capable to handle uh, the demand that we receive. Um, but at the same time, as we grow, uh, we're constantly taking feedback, both from our union partners and anybody that interacts with our interface, uh, because we want to make this robust and really beneficial to the workers. That's our priority, is helping the workers uh, enjoy more benefits uh, through unionization. And so we're going to be constantly adapting and changing as we go. Uh, I'm very curious, um, will this focus just on BC at this particular point or Canada-wide? Right now, we are focused just in BC. Um, and like I said, I mean, we're, we're, we will eventually probably expand into Canada. But right now, we're focusing on BC just because uh, it's, it's kind of the logical place for us to start. The unionization rate in British Columbia has been, over the last 30 years, uh, the unionization rate has been slowly declining. It hovers around 28 to 30 percent, may have leveled off a little bit, uh, but it's still at about 28 to 30 percent. The public sector, of course, um, significant unionization. Private sector is where there's been a significant decline in unionization. Your focus, I'm going to assume, is going to be on the private sector, number one. Number two, my question to you is, why do you think unionization rates have been in decline, particularly in the private sector, in your mind? I think the biggest part is education. I think people just don't fully understand, you know, the benefits of unionization, right? And one feature of our platform is that, you know, we're not pressuring people to come to our website and start a union drive. They can come to our website, create an account, and kind of uncover different pieces of information on why it may be beneficial and right for them to move forward with the process. Uh, You know, throughout our launch, we're hoping to have some webinars and just more information for people to really you know, grasp that educational part. Um, and, you know, that's what we're really striving to do. So I think education is is, is the primary answer to your question there. Uh, and, and right now, when you launch, uh, it'll be um, on the browser initially, and then uh, I'm assuming you will probably one day slowly move towards an app? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. Like, we launch tomorrow, uh, Thursday, January 19th, and, yeah, you can visit us on our website on your mobile browser or your desktop. Uh, but yes, the plan would be to uh, eventually have an app as we grow. All right. Well, Colton, thank you so much for your time. Pl- pleasure chatting with you and all the best to you. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jess.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.